All right. Today on the Real Leaders Podcast, I have got Adam Mabry. I, am I allowed to say that we're friends? I don't know if that's good for you. That could be perfectly lead. fine with me. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 think I hope we are. <laughs> I, I, I love you and I've gotten to know you. And uh, for those who may or may not be aware of you, we're going to talk about critical theory and a lot of social political issues and, you know, why the feces and fan is interfacing right now in our culture and all of that. And so, <laughs> Um, so my question to you initially be a little bit about your story, your testimony, and where your church is at, because you're in a unique position, and then kind of some of your experiences academically there and how that's playing out socially and politically. So that's it. If you could just fix the universe in 45 to 48 minutes, that would be awesome. So there you go. I, I will do my best. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so hi, I'm Adam. I was born and raised in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is not typically where good things happen. Uh, it's where a lot of college students come to uh, yep. make make mistakes that they'll uh, uh, regret later if they remember them. And uh, and that's where I was raised. The, the, the town is actually pretty great. It's a pretty small town and um, uh, grew up in a, in a broken home um, and uh, met Jesus when I was 12 because a friend invited me to camp. Uh, I didn't know it was a Christian camp. I didn't even know that such things existed. I just knew that I wanted to get out of my parents' house uh, because I, everything around me, you know, you're kind of coming of age and becoming aware of your surroundings at that time. So um, he could have said, let's got, go to Al-Qaeda training camp. And I'd be like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Um, praise God, it wasn't one of those. Um, and uh, yeah, I met, I met Jesus and that, that was amazing. And then I came home and um, started to evangelize my family, which they didn't appreciate very much. Um, and so, uh, but, but God being amazing, uh, it, three to four years later, just one by one started touching my family members and um, uh, worked in my dad's life, worked in my mom's life. And um, even though their marriage didn't survive, he's you know done a really cool work uh, through them and, and my sister as well. And then when I was 15 and in math class, I met my the woman who would become my wife. Um, so, uh, so yeah, graduate college, we were both complete music nerds. She studied piano performance. I studied vocal performance, which is a degree that's uh, really useful for um, hanging yeah. on the wall. Yeah, you get cuts in the unemployment line with that. So that's, it's super, super <laughs> you know, advantageous. Yeah. When I've made that observation to other music majors, they don't appreciate it. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, we had this dream. We wanted to go be like uh, college music professors and, you know, and follow Jesus and stuff. So um, I being a, you know, a overachiever was like, marry her. Uh, so I shoved my four year degree into two years and we got married a week later. And I, I was oh, wow. 20, she was 21. And, um, and then around the same time, we kind of began to realize, like, God's probably calling us into ministry. Um, I got real bitter about that, got real mad at God. He's frustratingly secure and didn't change his mind. Uh, yeah, he, it's, he's got this real I'm in charge thing. Yeah, it's, it's like a messiah complex. That's weird. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we, uh, we were part of an amazing campus ministry with uh, Every Nation Campus Ministry there at Florida State University. And we were also dirt poor because we were newly married. And um, they were like, hey, do you want to go on a free? And I just stopped listening after free. I was like, yeah, let's do that. Turns out it was a conference. Turns out at that conference, uh, God radically called us into ministry. And so we thought this is a great time to get pregnant and also, uh, you know, start a whole new life. So we, um, in a course of about a year, we had a baby and then we packed up all our stuff and we moved to Edinburgh, Scotland. We lived there for five years. Had Beautiful more kids. town. We went there oh. with the kids. It's gorgeous. You've got the Royal yeah. Mile, you've got Edinburgh Castle, you've got John Knox's church. Amazing, mm -hmm. bro. Congratulations. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, it's it, God could have said, hey, I'm going to teach you some lessons in Detroit, but he sent you to Edinburgh. So that's a way. <laughs> that's true. However, 
in sending a Florida kid uh, to Scotland, uh, th- it rains 300 days a year there. So I, I lived in the uh, same place. It's depressing. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, uh, so yeah, God did a bunch of stuff. I totally caught the church planning bug. Um, learned a ton about myself that I'm, I, I'm kind of gifted to, to help people who think Christianity's nuts, uh, meet Jesus. And so, um, we got a letter in the mail from her majesty's border and customs agency, which was politely, politely inviting us to get the heck out of the country, uh, <laughs> cause they changed the requirements for our visa. So we thought, well, what city in America is a lot like that? So we moved to Boston and, uh, so we planted our church almost 10 years ago, nine and a half or so. And, Congrats. um, yeah, thanks man. It's been a wild ride, but God's been so, really good. And in that time, so you are a bit of an apologist and evangelist. I mean, you like to answer questions and talk to unbelievers and sure or false that you studied some or did some ministry under with Rice Brooks, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, well-known in that and does all the God is not dead stuff. And you're working on a degree now. So I know we yeah. can't, we can't, we can't look at you and think you may be academic. So uh, <laughs> for those who, uh, who may not be aware, what do you, what do you study and what are you working on academically right now? So currently I'm enrolled in um, a PhD program at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, hopefully have about 18 more months on that. And then I'm about to finish a doctor of ministry program at Gordon-Conwell just up the road here. So Okay. And yeah. uh, so where's your church located? So we have two physical locations. And now, much like everybody, we have an online campus yeah. that I never wanted, but now is being fruitful. So praise God. So uh, our, our largest and oldest location is uh, in Cambridge, on uh, right in between Harvard and MIT. Um, and then our, our newest location, uh, the one that, that uh, we praise God, we get this miracle building for, is just up the road from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So you're dealing with highly academic, well-educated, very left-leaning progressives. Mm -hmm. Fair to say? Pretty much. Okay, so a lot of the issues that so I'm in I'm in America. I don't know if you've heard of Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a, it's a great <laughs> yeah. place here in America, and uh, and there are places we, we bid you greetings from the People's Republic of whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, for for uh, I mean, I spent you know 20 years or something doing ministry in Seattle, but for a lot of the country right now, guys in the guys and gals in the Midwest, more of the Southern states. They're like, what is going on? What is going on mm-hmm. socially, politically, culturally? What's with all the conflicts? What? And, they're, and they're, it, it just seems like the world went upside down and they're trying to figure out cause effect, What? why? And so for yeah. you, for more of a philosophical, theological, reflective perspective, where a lot of the academy is, I mean, you're upstream where the ideas start and then they flow downstream mm-hmm. through mainstream culture, you're mm-hmm. upstream and you've been dealing with these issues now for a decade. And so just what would your analysis be of some of the, some of the underlying causes for all of the, all of the polarization of literally every single social and cultural issue right now? Yeah. So I, I think that there are a few uh, causes. Um, so we'll start uh, academically um, decades ago now, probably about 50 years ago, um, variations on what has now come into popular parlance as, as critical theory started to make their way into all, all kinds of different academic disciplines. Um, it, it started as kind of an outgrowth, outgrowth of, of postmodern thought um, um, from the Frankfurt School and, and, and those guys, and, uh, and sort of as metastasized in every department uh, in, in various forms and ways. And critical theory is a little bit hard to nail down because it's, uh, it, it is, 
its basis is to criticize whatever's there, right? So you can't really put your hands on it. It's a bit like, you know, grasping after fog or something. But so it's, would it be it, kind of the outgrowth of the deconstruction of postmodernism? A hundred percent, yeah. So it's always except, an anti-critique, yeah. Yeah, except with this, um, some people want to call it neo-Marxist. I, I don't feel like that's particularly, uh, that, that brings more heat than light, I think. Um, Marx was uh, critiquing uh, the use of wealth and and power structures and uh, and of course at the end of World War II and after America won the Cold War, uh, Marx's critique seems uh, seemed less uh, viable, right? So basically, the language around Marx's critique started to move over to um, from from economics to just power in general, and uh, and began to be picked up in certain um, certain departments, particularly like women's studies and, and gender studies departments and things like that, and uh, English literature started to move around. And, uh, and, and now it's kind of everywhere. And so everywhere you hear now language like um, uh, uh, critiquing structures of power or critiquing um, the uh, colonial kind of Western heteronormative white, you know, Anglo male, th those, those kind of monikers are thrown out as uh, this sort of intentionally nefarious uh, base of power that was set in place. And now the most moral thing we can do is to deconstruct that or to uh, decolonialize or, or or something like that, so that the those who are being oppressed by such structures can can be free. So just um, to simply summarize, I went to public school. So let me do the public school summary for you. So okay. would it be fair to say that kind of the that that um, the the critical theory is is a bit of a worldview? Mm, oh yeah, totally. And it's it's a lens and an ideology like the gospel of Jesus Christ that everything is sort of interpreted to with certain very established presumptions. And that would be that people in power created systems and institutions that oppressed or took advantage of those who did not have the power. Therefore, okay. justice is to dismantle those institutions and structures, redistribute the power to those who were oppressed, and let them reinvent the systems. That would be the architecting of justice. Yeah, that, that would be, I think, a, a pretty good way to, to put it. Yeah. So we're seeing it play out practically now, like take down the police department. That would mm -hmm. be one example, you know, take down the, mm -hmm. the, the nuclear family with, you know, a male leader, um, mm -hmm. take down um, certain oppressive forms of education. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we were having a side conversation. Uh, there was even one of the schools near you was talking about sort of the, the neo-colonial patriarchal nature of math. So now we need to deconstruct oh, yeah. how we do math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are people at MIT who, with, with tenure <laughs> who on that bandwagon, I don't understand it, but yeah. So within that, um, many that are within Christianity, they're, they're, especially younger evangelicals, this language of justice, injustice, the poor, the oppressed, a lot of the language appeals to a biblical narrative, biblical storyline, and mm -hmm. you can't look at America's history and you can't look at slavery and say, Hey, there's there's no room for improvement. No problem here. Yeah. No, no problem here whatsoever. There there for sure is a problem, but what is the problem with the proposed solution? Yeah. So the problem with the proposed solution uh, is I, I want to say it's threefold. One, it misunderstands human nature. So it suggests that uh, human nature it, it actually doesn't really speak to it. Um, it. It presumes that human nature is different by race or class or creed. So that. Uh, 
like my human nature is fundamentally different from and unable to relate to say a woman's or a, a black woman or a, a uh, you know, black um, sexual minority woman or something like that. And so that's where you get this, um, uh, this theory called intersectionality. So w when you can, uh, which actually by itself is kind of helpful. It, it's designed to help you not just see people as a group. Like there's not white people and black people. It's designed to help you go, okay, what things are intersecting in this person's life to, to give them challenges? Like that, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. But in kind of the new Gnostic religion way, this is being instantiated in some places and amongst some people, it, it becomes like a way of uh, understanding humanity and and it's it's not designed to do that so it fundamentally fundamentally misunderstands humanity two it fundamentally misunderstands um the nature of of justice and because it presumes upon itself the ability to properly distribute whatever this thing is called power um which is the third problem it never defines this thing called power and so in this system uh it, it actually turns out to be a postmodern religion so if you think of pre-modern religions as like with ghosts or you know zeus or demigods or all that and then kind of modernism happened and a bunch of folks in germany were like you know no uh, that's all crazy we, we've got to collapse everything to this imminent frame right here in this postmodern form of religion the gods come off mount olympus and they inhabit systems which interestingly are also intangible you can't really mm -hmm. see them. You can sort of feel them, but you can never properly move them around. And, and so the salvation story becomes all about changing these systems that we can't really impact, which sounds an awful lot like pre-modern spirituality. So I, I want to be careful here because there are... In, sorry. Dog. What's the noise? You got to tell us. <laughs> that, would, that would be my dog, Lark. What kind of dog uh, you got? This is important. Um, this is important stuff. Uh, so uh, I never wanted a dog. And then a few years ago, the Holy Spirit was like, get your wife a dog. And I was like, no. And uh, he kept saying it. So uh, I said, hey, baby, what kind of dog you want? And she said, I want a, like a mastiff, like a huge man bear dog. And I was like, well, that's never going to happen. So I bought her a miniature Labradoodle because they don't shed and they don't take giant man poops in my backyard. She's pretty good, except her bark never. Dude, I know dropped. you're sharing a lot of helpful stuff. That might have been the most practically insightful pastoral counsel that some received all day. So thank you. Yeah, there you go. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. I, I got a German do, do shepherd that lays around in Scottsdale, Arizona in the house and sheds. So that well, gee, I can't imagine why you moved did, a, 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 a fur rug to the, to the, <laughs> the desert place yeah. on earth. Really yeah. threaded the needle on that pet decision. And um, so, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So we can get into critical pet theory at the very end. So yeah. I just want to save the best <laughs> for last. So, yeah. so would, would it be fair to say for those that are trying to wrap their brain around it, that the concept of sin, even if that, and it's more language of injustice than sin mm -hmm. would be more systemic than personal. That uh, systems yeah. are evil, not people. And so it's not personally repenting of my sin. It is personally repenting of systemic injustice and therefore salvation is tearing down the institution to free people. Yes. I, I think am largely I close. Speaking. I mean, I'm, you're close. And it, it, I would say unless, unless you're white. <laughs> um, and so if you look at like Robin D'Angelo's book, uh, white fragility, big New York times bestseller um, yeah. and, uh, and, and worth a read because uh, yeah, I mean, she, you know, if you're going to understand something, you got to read it's it's most loud and, and best proponents. So, um, so in in her book, she's basically making the argument that all white people are racist because in this way of understanding things, racism is um, privilege plus plus power. So 
So if you are privileged and you have power, you can't not be racist uh, in, in the way in the way she describes it. And whereas most people understand racism is like an internalized like uh, attitude a pers- of bigotry. A personal, yeah, personal yeah, prejudice. Yeah, like yeah. I don't like this kind of person. Yeah, um, which fits neatly under the biblical definition of partiality. Like you shouldn't, you know, to prejudge someone or something is to is to be partial. And 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 James particularly is like not about that. So so this takes that out of there. And so white fragility is about like uh, how to come to terms with uh, how how fragile we white people can be when when we're confronted with that. Um, and. Again, there's some truth in all of this, right? So I, I don't want to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater because I think when pastors do that, we miss uh, we miss the actual issue. So a good friend of mine constantly reminds me, Adam, the issue isn't the issue. So if we listen past a little bit, like the, the immediate presentation of all this critical theory stuff, and we try to hear, okay, what's true in there? Um, yeah, it's totally true that, uh, you know, America has... And the American church has been complicit with the sin of racism um, in, in various stages and ways. And, and not everybody equally, but it's just true. Uh, you can't, I mean, that's an, an historic fact. Um, it's true that we in America invented a caste system around particularly the, the darkness of skin um, so that we could perpetuate an institution called slavery. Like all of that is true. And the echoes of that are real. Um, but my, my deepest problem with, with critical theory is, is when we start to listen to its solutions. Um, because it's solutions, while well-meaning, I think for most people, because I think all of us want to live in a world where there's no racism and no classism and no greed, and like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, it's a, what it will actually end up doing, though, is the exact opposite of what it hopes, and it'll, it'll really tear people apart. And in that way, I think um, it, it can become a, a very demonic thing. Um, not, not that every insight it has is wrong, but that when we listen to it for a solution, boy, that, that becomes a real, real problem. And um, and so we want to listen carefully to it and understand it and not just go, you know, on the internet and destroy critical theory with facts and logic, because that does the, that, the, that side taking only hardens those who we need to win. Right. Uh, we don't want to, we so, want to win our, our, our uh, enemy, not, not just beat them. So would it be fair to say just within critical theory, and this is where, you know, some would connect it, as you said, to a, a concept of more of a cultural social Marxism than an economic Marxism. But there is this this longing, this sense, this hope for utopia. Oh yeah, and totally. equality, and provision, and human yeah. flourishing. Which ultimately, yeah. you know, even Marx's you know original vision of utopia, it's it's the human heart that was created to live in the presence yeah. of God and is in a fallen world and feels homeless. I mean, that's just. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the uh, the people that are longing for that world, they they really need Jesus because without Jesus, there's no way that we make that world. There's no way that, right. that we can succeed in that Babel attempt to create that utopia apart from the presence of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Mark Mark Sayers talks a lot about this. How we we always want uh, the promise of progress without the the King. Like we we want the stuff that He promises to give us just without any of His presence, and that's that's never going to work. It, it, and, uh, but I also think here there's like a huge opportunity because, I mean, in, in some ways you can, some of the things you read Jesus saying, like the Pharisees, for example, sound an awful lot like, you know, you're reading Foucault or something, because I mean, he's looking at Pharisees and he's saying, you guys, you're not doing the weightier matters of the law. And, you know, you're, you're tithing your mint, you're, you tithe your spices, but you're, you're dead inside. And you're only doing these things to, to keep those people over there. You know, you've got, you're tying up these heavy burdens that they have to carry. 
I mean, anytime Jesus and Foucault agree, you got to pay attention there. Right. Um, so, so there's a, like that part of that, uh, critique is, is totally valid. Um, it's just when that's, uh, when it gets launched into like, therefore we need to vote so-and-so in or out. Like, no, man, that's not gonna, so we tried that in the (laughs) eighties. It didn't work. Let's take it uh, a step further. So there is critical race theory Mm -hmm. and, um, but even beyond that, then there's critical gender theory. There's there's critically. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of critical theories, yeah. but yes. But how does it play out then in issues of gender and sexuality? Because for a lot of pastors, and I know we're you know we're juggling mm-hmm. grenades in front of a live audience, so that's very fun. Um, <laughs> nothing could go wrong. Nothing could go wrong. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With, with me just riffing, what could possibly go wrong? But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but within that, a lot of pastors are struggling because they're like, okay, I believe. There is institutional racism. I believe in America's history. This is the original sin. I believe mm-hmm. that we need to make changes and do better. But mm-hmm. part of that same group are transgender, pro-gay marriage, um, polygamous, um, you know, uh, gender reassignment surgery folks. And the pastor's like, okay, these are, these are yeah. as one group. Yeah. And like, I'm sympathetic here, but biblically, I can't, I can't see this as an aligned group. And even as a pastor, we can go to the New Testament where it, it literally in the same verse, it talks about adultery, fornicators, and slave traders, all is wrong. And when mm-hmm. they all form together, it, 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 so you're like, this is wrong, but that's wrong. Yeah. Too. If they're together as an alliance. Explain to the pastors how critical theory applied to gender and sexuality and marriage is, is making this a more complicated issue to untangle. Totally. So critical theory, there's not really one, right? There are critical theories um, and, and they come into all kinds of different things, as you point out. So when it comes into sexuality, um, uh, then those who are um, transgender or same-sex attracted, homosexual, bisexual, like, I don't know, they're, they're, any kind of sexuality that you want to uh, define, uh, then the same tools get, get used. So, oh, okay, that's why it's important. You, you'll hear the Western heteronormative. That's where that word came from, heteronormative. That uh, a bunch of heterosexuals got together and said, well, we want to oppress all of these uh, sexual minorities. And so uh, that's where the power came in as, as a cudgel. And again, that's wrong. So we need to undo that which is why we need, you know, all, all kinds of different uh, sexual expressions and, and things like that. So that's one example. Um, and it's also why it's so important for, um, for uh, this particular group to argue that uh, sexuality is an innate characteristic this, in the same way race is, um, which of course, like, it, it's, it's not. Like, it, it's just not. Uh, when, when a, when a uh, Chinese baby or a white baby or an African-American baby are born, like, we there they are, like they are what they are, right? But we obviously can't see any of that instantiated in, a, you know, in, in the appearance of a, a child um, because it's so connected to our behavior. And um, and anyway, that that that's where that becomes really confusing um, because even when you're talking to a critical race theory or critical uh, sexual theorist or something like that, and just a regular old pastor, they're not even using words the same. So they're going to use words like sex and attraction. And, and they're, and so they're, they're going to talk like this to each other. They're, they're going to miss each other. Totally. Um, when it comes to gender, it's the same thing. That's why it's, um, uh, gotta be uh, white Western heteronormative patriarchy. Uh, it's really important that we, uh, understand that, Oh, okay. Men have for centuries oppressed women. And so therefore we need to, we need to, um, come out from under that with the same tools of critical theory. And, and again, it sounds plausible because it's got some truth in, in it. Uh, we all know chauvinists. So like we've all seen them. 
Uh, and, and you don't have to look too far back in history to find laws that treated women in our own country as, as less than. And, and so that's true, right? Um, but critical theory offers this powerful overcorrection to a, a true observation of history. Like, yeah, we, that was horrible and we shouldn't have done that. Um, but there's no, there's no limiting principle. Like uh, there's no, you never arrive at the thing that it promises. So there's just nothing but more deconstructing to do. Um, same thing happens when it comes to, uh, so it happens in, in literary studies. So you come to, uh, you know, you come to uh, uh, like get your Bible out. And, uh, you know, if you go to like Harvard Div School down the road from me, then you're not taught to read this text in the, like a historic critical way. Uh, crit sorry, uh, even that is a different word use the word critically differently but you're not taught to read it like oh what did the author mean authorial you're taught, yeah 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 you're taught to read well who's missing from this text you're who who would be left out of this text and how do we bring them into this text which is of course like a that's we can at least give it points for creativity but you know in the history of the church that's well okay that's new um and, and that's how all of these different readings of scripture show up and uh, if you're interested in doing one of those harvard will give you a phd in it um and, and so that's how the tools of critical theory, I identify uh, the oppressed and the oppressor um, and who's wielding power, you know, which way, and then liberate them. Now, what's, again, what's powerful about it is it's- It's a borrowing of a gospel narrative. I always say whatever, book God, of Exodus. <laughs> whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. Yeah. And yeah. so this is a counterfeit of the gospel narrative. I mean, Jesus says, you know, very clearly at the front, he's like, you know, I've come to set captives free, you know, mm -hmm. people and, and, to, and to bring justice to the oppressed. I mean, he says yeah. it. Yeah. And so, but ultimately, anything that is promising heaven without Jesus as king does not deliver on its promise. Yeah. And so people are passionately pursuing, you know, this utopian heaven hope of a deliverance and everyone is a sinner and if you overlook individual human sin it doesn't matter who builds the next institution if it's not jesus it will just find a way to harm to cause injustice because we're all sinners by nature and choice and it doesn't matter who builds it it's broken because we're broken yes totally and and it ends up and it's sort of doing it now like you can see it in slow motion in like popular culture now it eats itself. Um, uh, it's, uh, I forget what you call it. What's a snake that eats itself? Uh, 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 I forget what it's called. Maybe someone, someone's going to, there's a picture of a snake eating its own tail. You can find this. Uh, you even find it in nature. And, and that's what this ends up doing. It ends up being like the French revolution. Like eventually Robespierre got his head removed, right? Eventually the, the revolution comes for you too. And, and so even like the, the live slow motion canceling of Ellen, you know, would be a good example of, okay, uh, at some point, uh, it, it you know she got caught under the the wheels of this kind of constantly moving train because the way we root out evil in the world is by kind of this uh, offense archaeology. Like we we find um, some sort of um, bad thing that someone has done or has been associated with doing. You know, so and so stood next to this other person, um, and therefore they're contaminated. And and weirdly. It, it's a lot like ritual impurity. Like if, you, oh, I came, that person came near, you know, uh, the yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. And, and now they're unclean too. So we've got to, we've got to get them out. Um, but of course, if you keep going, then you eventually have to cancel yourself. Um, and, 
And so I don't, I don't think that's, that's not going to go anywhere good. Um, but I do think it, it presents a really good opportunity for uh, the, the church to, you know, for instance, with the race conversation, to listen a little bit better and not just, you know, it, it would, I think, be a really big shame if every white pastor in America suddenly shut their ears to, um, to their black pastor friends or, or just black brothers and sisters in Christ in general um, because they're using the language of critical theory. Uh, that would be a mistake because I think we have an opportunity to go, okay, we did in fact miss something. Let's listen to what that is. But we actually need each other in order, in order to get there. Um, well, and, and part of it too, I, I would submit that, um, that at the end of the day, what, what some pastors are doing, especially right now, everything's very politicized. I mean, yeah. you put all these issues in an election cycle and you're down to two choices. You go left or you go right. And so, yeah. you know, you watch CNN or you watch Fox, you know, you, yeah. you know, and so um, at the end of the day, you know, it seems to me like there are a group of pastors who they don't like the proposed solution, so they're denying that there is the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like the the problem and the solution of critical theory come together. If you if you agree there's a problem, then you have to accept our solution as a pastor. Right. Like, I I I agree there's a problem. I I I don't agree with the solution. So for those mm -hmm. who are feeling and sensing that. And we don't want to just go political right, political left, you know, yeah. go up and find Jesus and thy yeah. will be done on earth as it is in heaven, live kingdom down. What does it look like to present the gospel in a way that those on the right will accept that there is a problem and those on the left will accept that the Bible gives the solution? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's why um, I so asked you. I don't know, man. Shameless, shameless, I, I found, shameless self promotion. I this this is kind of the whole the whole topic of the book I just wrote, um, and particularly there's a there's a chapter I wrote about this. I think the best thing Christians can do first is to might as reject. well push your book, brother. All right, here I'll, I'll push it. I'll hold it I up. Got big a copy on, on my yeah. desk too. There you go, right there. You should, it starts here. You should stop taking sides. Um, yeah, because that it's that impulse that first has to be resisted this oh i have to choose either we're going to be a republican church or a democratic church or you know i'm going to be a, a right-leaning pastor or a left-leaning pastor now i've got to i've got to sort into this game i think the first thing the pastor has to do is go i'm not playing this game like this is not the game this is not the the, the mission i don't need to to wave any kind of flag for or against any like that's not that's not the game i have to play that's not to say pastors shouldn't be politically involved it's just we don't have to play this game and in fact i think we need to to uh, really push our people to reject the idea that reality is a war between right and left and the best way possible to bring heaven on earth is through politics i i just don't see that anywhere in my bible christians flourished really well under caligula and nero and all kinds of terrible people um and and the the church in china i mean i was just on a zoom call a month ago with what hundreds of thousands of uh of of illegal church leaders they're filled with faith they're doing great <laughs> i felt totally rebuked i shouldn't have led that phone call um we we've got to see like we are sometimes way more allegiant to preserving america and our and our comfort than we are to getting kingdom out so first is reject the game second is we actually really have to love this person who's mad at us man like you, you've got to, you've got to like let go of your right to be offended. Because right now in culture, culture says if you have a right to be offended, you got power. 
that's your ticket to power. If you have a legitimate offense and the more you can talk about it, the more power that gives you. And that's actually a good thing in this weird neo-gnostic kind of kind of world we're living in, because then you can pull down the system, man, because you're taking power from those who've had it in the, you know, et cetera. Got to reject that um, altogether and, and refuse to use the, the power of offense. Instead, and this is going to sound cheesy to some, loving your enemy I'm discovering in in the season where this is, you know, I've gotten multiple cancellation attempts for even saying this stuff. I think loving your enemy is the most powerful thing you can possibly do right now. Loving them. And when they call you a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe, knuckle-dragging, MAGA hat-wearing, or Bernie bro, like whatever they got at you, you go, okay, um, but I still love you. And and if you refuse to play the game, Mm -hmm. eventually, I really believe there's something really attractive about that. I mean, just a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of Christians had to die in the Colosseum before a whole empire woke up to like, this isn't working. And actually they're kind of awesome. Um, you know, it's going to cost some of us, um, or maybe a lot of us. Uh, but I think if we love our enemy well right now, like just love them, pray for them. I mean, it sounds so basic, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But pastor, when that guy or gal comes after you on Twitter, first of all, get off Twitter. It's a terrible place to be. Um, but if they, you know, when they come after you with the emails or, the, or whatever, because of your, you know, because you, you aren't saying the thing they wish you would say, love them and pray for them. Do your best to, to hear them and, you know, disentangle what's true in their critique from what's just not and keep going keep going i know so many i'm sure you do pastor mark so many pastors right now that just want to quit i mean i wanted to quit bro they're exhausted they're discouraged um my concern is uh, well and and for many like you i mean we're we're an essential service and so we're able to meet in arizona you're still closed right no um ish i mean we've got like pretty uh pretty restrictions um but you know we're slowly opening up. So I don't think we have it the worst. I think our, I believe it's our brothers in California that might have the most draconian restrictions, but I'm not sure. But I mean, think about it right now for a lot of uh, ministry leaders, they've not been able to be with their people. Yeah. We're in a a very, wherever you're at on the political spectrum, we can all agree on one thing. It's complicated and painful, you know? Yeah. Um, And people are isolated. They're very, very lonely. And we're seeing spikes in, alcoholism, domestic violence. Oh, yeah. We're looking at a divorce boom, you know, abuse of children. Yeah. People yeah. are self-medicating, self-destructing. And so if all you're left with is kind of, you know, going onto social media to connect with the world, yeah, you're not going to be healthy. That's not a great place to be right now. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of pastors are just really, frankly, worn out. I think they are discouraged. I think they are a bit overwhelmed. And I think they're struggling to not allow all of the noise in the culture to dominate the message from the pulpit. Yeah. Uh, because right now, if what you decide is, well, let's take Fox and CNN and bring them into church and just see what happens. That's, you know, that's not the kingdom of God either. That's not a fun place to yeah. be, you know? So what, yeah. for those pastors that are trying to navigate all of this, I mean, just the, it's a bizarre time. Yeah. It really is a bizarre time. I think the first thing I'd say to him is like, brother, I really understand because I am like literally just coming through that, that feeling. Um, I, I told my, my elders and my staff uh, about a month ago, like guys, I got to go 
away and get with Jesus. I'm out, like, I, I feel scooped out. I got nothing else. Um, and, uh, and so the first thing I would say is pastor, uh, get, get before God. Um, one of the things that I have not appreciated as much is how much the secondhand smoke of my job, uh, like gives me the the high of God's presence. What I mean by that is you can't like Sunday normally, normally what it used to be was, you know, I'd arrive at church around 645 in the morning and I wouldn't leave until like nine in the evening. We had four services and I teach a bunch of classes. You can't be around God's people and do four services and not get just a little lift, you know, um, even just being around the people of God, like there's a lift that comes from that. And when all that's taken away and all you're left with is your own walk with Jesus, one of the things I discovered is that, boy, it's way too anemic. It, it, I, there was not a, a big enough pipe coming from heaven into my soul to supply my needs in this season. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't forge a, a, a big enough connection with Jesus. And so I've had to, I've had to go back and do that. And so I definitely encourage them to do that. Um, the third thing I realized, and I don't think I did this well in the season either, is that your staff feels it too, uh, in weird ways. And because uh, because every pastor right now is facing all of these same issues, so is their staff. And there's you know when people are trying to be upset or leave the church or want to ask the pastor a question or something, they're the ones that are running defense oftentimes yeah. for the leaders. And it's easy for people like me to forget that. And so I would say care if you'll care for those people first, um, then it will it will move out properly in, in the church. Well, I think I'd say right now a lot of. A lot of days feels like a head-on collision and a lot of your staff and leaders, your airbag that deploys. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your spouse too, under these kind of yeah. bizarre circumstances. I mean, you know, even yeah. if you love your spouse, they're absorbing a lot. Because um, yeah. in addition to all of the, I mean, right now what you're dealing with is, I mean, very rarely in the history of the world has there been a global issue that the whole planet is dealing with at the same time. That's pretty unusual. Yeah, when there's three of them. Yeah. Like there's a pandemic and the worst pandemic in a hundred years, the worst economic crash since the 1930s and the worst race relations since the late 1960s, all in the same six month period. Like while the church is closed, while you've got all your own, you know, financial, practical, personal (laughs) powder cake it with an election Mm -hmm. and, um, and then add the total joy of social media and, And yeah, I think a lot of pastors are trying to figure out, is this a sustainable path for life? I mean, like literally for the guys that are older, I was on a call uh, recently with a bunch of pastors and in a moment of honesty, some of the old guys, I mean, these are good guys with good churches and they're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're great men. They're just like, I, I'm thinking about retiring early and just kind of, you know, taking my cleats off and leaving the field. And, Mm -hmm. but if you're in your thirties or your forties, you're like, I, I, I'm at halftime right now. And how do I yeah. make it through the second half? And if this if this is the kind of conflict that the world has, and this becomes the new norm, how does anyone maintain any sort of health as a public leader? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's one thing to be the guy who just unplugs from the internet, goes and finds a cabin in Alaska, you know, and writes his memoirs and publishes them after he's passed away. The guy who's actually going to be in the pulpit, going to be preaching messages like you do, writing books and and communicating. I mean, you know, it's a very, I'm concerned if I, I didn't mean for the conversation to go this way, but I'm old enough yeah. now, I'm 50. I, I'm just really concerned for the well-being of a whole generation of younger pastors. 
And a lot of them are struggling because their board is more older, conservative, you know, fiscally aware, they would be the ones with privilege and power in that narrative. And so their board is really sort of pulling the steering wheel hard right. A lot of their younger creative staff that were raised critical theory, they're pulling the steering wheel hard left. And the, the, the pastor is trying to keep this thing on the road. And, and it's, it's an incredibly complicated time, especially, uh, especially for a lot of young leaders, that this is their first you know, season of this kind of, of leadership crisis. Yeah. What are you yeah. seeing among young pastors? I mean, a lot of young guys look up to you. You are doing a great job in a hard place, and we're all proud of you. But what are you seeing with the young guys you're talking to? Very much exactly what you just described. Um, I mean, I, I've seen it in me. I, I, when I took myself to that little trip to Montana to go be with Jesus, the, the first couple of days were me making a very articulate case to Jesus that I should not be a pastor anymore and go into business with my dad. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, of course, he, he said no, <laughs> yeah. um, which, which I'm grateful for. Um, so I, I do see it. And I, I, I see it in my, in my friends who are, who are pastors, too. Um, and, uh, I've had a lot of them around my fire pit in the back, just listen to them. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it is a hard moment, but here's, here's what I, here's my faith. Uh, and I don't, this doesn't feel true all the time. Actually, most of the time it doesn't feel true, but I believe it is true. I think that this is the kind of shaking that God is allowing by his sovereignty and by his wisdom because he wants to see a renewal come to our world, to our nation. I mean, I, uh, you joked earlier about, you know, you pastor church in America. I pastor church where it was born. You know, I mean, we have a, we have a trail here called the freedom trail and it's, you know, like the, all the people who signed the declaration of independence are buried like two miles that way. So I deeply carry this nation in my heart and I'm hopeful that if we'll endure a little bit, uh, with hope on God and not in the, all the stuff we miss. I, I miss, I miss big full rooms. I miss people live laughing at my jokes. I miss laying hands on people. I miss all that. Yeah. Um, but if God wants to take all those things away from me so that I'll hope in him, then okay. And if I hope in him only or, or even more, I really believe that's the thing that happens before some really amazing things. Um, because I do think that this is going to eat itself. It can't bring about anything good. I just hope it doesn't have to get much, much worse before a renewal happens. I mean, after the civil war, a great renewal happened after the Vietnam war, a great renewal happened after world war two and world war one, great renewals happened. Um, and, and I I'm hopeful that after this culture war, um, a great renewal happens and maybe we can, as the church properly, like finally repent of and lay down this horrific national sin uh, of racism in a godly way, have real reconciliation. I mean, can you imagine Mark, if like your grandkids or your great grandkids, when they hear about a racially divided church, it, like from in Christian history books, they can't imagine it. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing hmm. for them to be like, that's not a, How'd that even work, you know, for them to like, just not even have a, the mental space for a church that was as acrimonious as, as, as we are right now. So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to those things and encouraging friends of mine to take more time off, to Sabbath properly, to 
you know, to, to you know, increase the bandwidth of their connectivity with Jesus and, uh, and keep their eyes on that sort of price, not like getting back to normal. I'm just like, I don't know what, maybe normal will come back or maybe something better, but just throw normal out for a minute. Um, that's, that's what's sustaining me at the moment. So uh, in closing, I'm going to give you a <clears throat> little bit of time. We started with, uh, you know, critical theory and, and critical theory would, to some degree, there are, of course, critical theories, but it helps to explain socially, politically, especially mm -hmm. for those who are older, uh, some of what's going on in the angst amongst those mm -hmm. who are younger. And, um, and within that, though, for a very long time, the gospel preached has been a personal salvation, mm -hmm. not the gospel of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I think what, even as we're having this conversation, and I'm, I'm a little tired, I'm turning 50, I'm aging in dog years, so I think I'm 350. Um, it's okay. But, You've got more hair than me, though, so well done there. Yeah, I, I, but bro, and the last will be first in heaven. You're going to be nine feet tall with an afro. It's going to be amazing. I so, can't wait. That's going to be amazing. Prophesy. <laughs> um, I receive it. <laughs> um, but I think that personal individual salvation that begins when you die is now being replaced with a longing for a kingdom that begins while you're still alive. Mm -hmm. And when we think of the gospel, it is personal, but it's not just Jesus saving souls. It's Jesus saving everything, institutions, yeah. organizations, structures. I mean, when, when the language of the kingdom of God is used in the Bible, it really, to me, is the only thing that fulfills that longing that people have it. They're like, we want justice. We want health. Mm -hmm. We want equality. We want reconciliation. We want forgiveness. We want, you know, provision. We want an eradication yeah. of poverty. It's like, hey, I don't know if you know this kids, you want Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I read the Bible. He's the only guy that tells us that this possibility exists. And then he's the only one actually who's going to make it a reality. And apart from him, every attempt historically has just ended in complete and total oppression and disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so maybe part of this for the, for the pastors that are the ministry leaders that give us the honor of speaking in is it's adding, we do need a personal relationship with Jesus and you just emphasize yeah. that, but we also need a vision of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of the evangelistic turn for the next generation is really that focus on living kingdom down because what what they're longing for is a kingdom but they don't have any sense of what that would be so there's no there's no architecting template to model off of well the kingdom of yeah. god is is the is the eternal home that god has intended for us so i would ask you maybe in closing take a few minutes or 10 minutes or i preach for an hour so take an hour do whatever you like <laughs> um explain how in your context with a lot of academics and liberals and people with more degrees than Fahrenheit, that you would explain to them the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is personal, but also then meets that longing for a kingdom. Mm. How would you, just as a pastor, how do you present that gospel? Because I think a lot of guys right now are trying to figure out what's the message. Well, the message is the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I think in bullet points. So uh, I think the first thing is you got to clarify what, what you mean when you say gospel. So um, most of us think the core of the gospel is accept Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. And it's not. It's just not. Um, that was a brilliant move on the part of Billy Graham to win a whole generation of people who were kind of Christians in name only. That's a great thing to say to uh, nominal Christians. Um, 
that's not the world we live in. We can actually preach the gospel that the apostles preached, which is Jesus is Lord. And so by declaring the lordship of Jesus, we're, we're of course, I mean, that's, that's a personal allegiance. I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. I turn away from the lordship of everything else and I want him to be king and like, oh yeah, I'm getting saved, but I've pledged allegiance to a king. That means there's a kingdom. That means there's ethics. That means there's rules. That means there's an army. That means there's, you know, a whole way of being in that thing. And I get to embody it and I can advocate for it. So I would, I would first say, clarify, just take, take some, take some time in your Bible and just read it. Uh, and, and clarify that the gospel, the, the apostolic gospel is not Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. That's just not, that. Mm-hmm. that's a great way in. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful evangelistic tool. I got no hate for it. That's how I came to faith. But the gospel simply declared in the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. So I'd start there. The second is I would, I would try to find, I mean, this is just straight straight up Tim Keller wisdom, right? You, and the gospel comes to confront, console, uh, and transform different parts of the culture. So I would say, well, well what, are, what are the common spaces? Hey, I see you really care about justice. I, I, I do this all the time. I ask questions. What do you mean by that? Like, okay, yeah, in general, what's that? And, and I just, I let him talk. Okay, well, so justice is a sense of fairness. And of course it always comes down to like a plumb line. All right, where do we get that? And we just start mining that. And I, I would, I would, as a pastor, I would get really comfortable asking my my younger folks those questions, and even my older folks. I'd ask my board, okay, what do you mean when you when you say these things? The the next move that I would make is is to show them exactly as you pointed out. Well, Jesus is the one. I mean, he's so committed to bringing about a just system that he died to do it. But unjust people can't run a just system. And if there was a just system, as soon as I show up to it, I break it because the the justice of God has not had its full effect in me. So these things are tethered. Now, I think it'd be, especially if, you, if the pastor's white like me, perfect opportunity to say, hey, I have in the past preached a truncated gospel. Like guilty is charged. I've preached personal salvation and and not not meaning to, but but the people of color in my church have heard, you know, so therefore you guys got to wait till heaven to have a better life and, and a more just world. And that's wrong. I, I can, rep- I can own that. It's okay. You know, I, I think that owning your sin is a pretty uh, godly thing to do. And then the fourth thing I would say is, don't, but, but don't let that collapse you into collusion with this Gnostic religion of, I don't even know what to call it, but that's got its feet in critical theory and, and, and Durkheim and the, and the, uh, so let me Frankfurt say, School, just don't don't do that because that's Gal- that is the Galatian heresy. Okay, so let me say to me, a pastor and the guy. Let me so so maybe the reason it's hard to quantify um, is maybe what we're dealing with is not a system but a spirit. Oh yeah, totally. And, and and when Paul rebukes the Galatians, he says, "Who is bewitched?" You mentioned Galatians. Well, that that means it's there's there's a demonic fog. Um, He says, even if we are an angel from heaven should bring another message other than the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Mm. So the, the underlying thread of, of the, of the manipulation of the gospel in Galatians Mm -hmm. behind it all was a spirit. Mm -hmm. And even in the book of Galatians, those would say, well, the Judaizers in this group, we have a hard time nailing down exactly what they're thinking was. It's like, it's dealing with the spirit. It's very hard to quantify exactly 
what is happening and why it is happening. The cause effect, the correlation, the systematization. I think for a lot of pastors, we're used to dealing with systems of thinking theologically, yeah. historically, apologetically, yeah. whatever the culture may be. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with the spirit, it's yes. very hard because pastors are like, I, I don't know how to explain this and I don't know how to define this and, and I don't know how to how to answer this, it's because you're dealing yeah. with the Spirit. And as you look at some of the self-destructive behavior that's going on right now, you have to look behind it. There must be spirits at work. Uh, yes, totally. So is, it, is, I, it I, even, is it even possible to get an understanding of what's going on in our world, you know, as a fully functioning cessationist or someone who, because of modernity, downplays the supernatural elements of the New Testament? I don't really believe in, a, in cessationism, <laughs> and I don't believe it exists um, because all my cessationist friends pray for people to be healed, um, and I don't mean that you know as a, as a as an ugly thing. I, I recognize you can be a godly person and, and and not believe in the continuation of the gifts. I think that that person is wrong, uh, but that's okay. Um, people think I'm wrong. Uh, I do think though, even if you would ca- call yourself a cessationist, and even if you're really into that, that doesn't negate anything about the the supernatural. Like you're still commanded to pray, and I've noticed. Um, just even in, so I have a team of intercessors. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up, uh, Pastor Mark. I, I, have, I have a team of people who, who like pray for me and my family. Uh, diligently, they, they promise to do it every day. I give them regular updates. Um, and I would say, man, uh, if you have, and, and this can't be just anybody, um, if you've got trusted people who love you and, are, and would commit to pray for you, man, it, give them information. Like, here's what I need you to pray for. Here's where I'm thinking about going with the sermon. Well, you know, Weirdly, all my kids are sick right now. Like sometimes, actually very often, the devil over, like he'll expose his hand and uh, you go, okay, this is obviously demonic. Um, and we're, we're walking through things in my own family that are very obviously demonic. And, uh, and, and those are the things by which prayer and fasting has to happen. Now, smart people always ask me, well, how does prayer and fasting work? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, there are lots of things. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell me. I just know that it does. Um, and I've spent more of the last two years, I mean, I'm praying and fasting almost every day. I mean, I'm praying every day, but I'm fasting for parts of almost every day and not because I'm trying to lose weight, um, but because I'm, I, I, I don't know, I don't know of another way to, to deal with the spiritual realities um, about, uh, about me. I mean, I believe that like the dirt I'm on, some of the most contended for dirt in America, um, uh, you know, I know every church planter thinks this is the hardest place in America, and I'm not trying to be that guy. I just but statistically, when I leave here, the Northeast is the least churched. Academically, yeah, yeah. where you're at is completely hostile. And, yeah, and when I get on an airplane and leave, it's easier for me to hear God, connect with Him, feel His presence. It's like a, when I fly back in. Well, remember flights when those were things back in the uh, old days when, when we'd leave the yeah, house and eat food we didn't cook. Boy, those were crazy yeah. times. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, I, and I would I remember like thinking, okay, I landed at Logan, and I could by the time I got my Uber, it was like, ugh, <laughs> there it is, um, and I could I could just feel it, um, and you need to be aware of that stuff and and pray. I mean, gratefully, you don't have to understand Gnosticism. I mean, the Bible deals with a lot of Gnosticisms, but never defines them, and I think that's the point. Like, I think this was written by a genius, so the point isn't to systematize it all, you know, understand it. And you see the church fathers doing that. Justin Martyr did it really well. And Tertullian did it really well. And that's fine. But those men actually walked in powerful uh, uh, expressions of spiritual gifts as well and talked about them right alongside their apologetics. Um, 
which is a fact of history not many people know. Um, so I would say, man, let like bring out the whole arsenal, pray more, rest more, um, think a little bit about like, okay, what is this? And, and try to listen um, uh, lovingly. Uh, we've got to lovingly orient ourselves toward our haters and interlocutors and, and believe the best about them, even when they want the worst for you. Um, and, and not give into the cynical power, manipulative drive by hate kind of game, uh, that we're all being called out into. You don't have to, um, show up to every fight you're invited to. And most of them, I think we probably shouldn't, because if we do, we can't fight the good fight. Hmm. Love you, buddy. It's good to see you. Uh, when the world opens up again, come visit me in the winter. You'll love it in Scottsdale in the winter. Yeah. Bring I would say wife. come and visit. Yeah. Come visit New England now, except you can't. You can't, yeah. It's not good. Yeah, next year. Next year. <laughs> um, would you be willing to just uh, and thank you for the conversation? I think it it uh, I think it went from the philosophical to the practical to the pastoral to the personal. So I think um, I, cool, I think it was it was in the spirit of God's will that we had this conversation. Would you be willing to close our time for those who give us the honor of eavesdropping and listening in, just praying for them and their families? I absolutely would, Father. Thank you. Um, Thank you for my friend, Mark. Thank you for his family. God, thank you for the, uh, the grace um, uh, around him. And uh, Lord, for every, every person listening right now, uh, whether they're in active church leadership or they're, maybe they've just quit or maybe they want to quit uh, or maybe they're aspiring to it. Um, Lord, I'm asking that somehow through our words, you would impart a spirit of encouragement, um, a spirit of faith to believe that this is not always the way it's going to be. We, we rebuke that lie. That says this is always the way it's going to be there is a way things will one day forever be and it's going to be amazing for the people of god and so lord I, i'm asking that you would fill my my friends here with with love with patience with endurance and with a hope that's set on god and not in recovering some good thing that they lost in the last six or nine months um so that we can come through this better than we we came into it in jesus name amen amen love you my friend good to see you buddy